Views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Welcome to this live broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio on this Wednesday night on the Black Talk Radio Network. Today's date is February the 27th in the year 2019. So glad to be back on these airways with you. We got a lot uh, to talk about. We have a scheduled guest for you uh, who should be calling calling in shortly. Uh, hopefully nothing has happened as I do want to have a conversation with this guest. But first, let me just say um, Sister Khadijah or Mother Khadijah and Tyson will not be with us tonight as they have a family emergency or illness in the family. And so therefore, uh, they're trying to take care of that issue. So they won't be with us tonight, but I'm here. Uh, Maxwell Melvins of the Grammy nominated Lifers Group is here and um, we will carry on uh, this program. So let me just give you an idea of what we'll be talking about tonight. It should be very interesting, um, but we should have a guest uh, calling in. We should have a guest. Excuse me. I'm getting distracted. Somebody calling me while I'm on air. So let me turn off my phone. That's my bad. I apologize. I should have turned it off. Um, but listen, we have a, a scheduled guest who's going to join us now. Mr. Rory, Rory Fleming is the founder of Fog Light Strategies. Now, it's a campaign research services firm for forward-thinking prosecutors nationwide. He had previously worked for the Fair Punishment Project, which was founded as a joint project of Harvard Law School's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute and its Criminal Justice Institute. And he is also a licensed Minnesota attorney. Now, how I came came to um, talk to uh, Mr. Fleming is he was on Twitter and the subject, he was commenting on the subject of private prisons. And he was saying how private prisons aren't really the biggest problem if you want to talk about mass incarceration, which, of course, I call neo-slavery uh, based on the 13th Amendment. And so I was saying to him that, wait a minute, we can't minimize the impact of the private prison lobby. 
because the private prison lobby, I mean, just this last election, they gave over, I can't remember how many millions of dollars that they created a super PAC to support Donald Trump, who during the campaign season was saying how, you know, he supported private prisons and, and how he's going to lock up these immigrants and, and what have you. And so that's why we, you know, we see so many people being locked up, you know, with that undocumented status right now and all the children, you know, being separated. And a lot of that is is uh, being uh, contracted out to private companies like the GL Group, like the Correction Corporations of America. I mean, you even got small uh, um what you call mom and pop corporations where, it's, you know, they're just running a jail. And they're not running a prison. They're just running a jail. So, you know, um, and I was saying, you know, we can't we can't ignore that because they also were private prison corporations were part of ALEC, which the Koch brothers founded. And they wrote legislation uh, to increase incarceration, then brought in state legislatures, taught them how to sell it to the public back home in their respective states and then got that legislation passed. So, you know, that's that's just, you know, a huge impact on the system. Now, I do understand where he came from, where he was coming from when we started dialoguing more. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, the majority of the prisoners are in the states. They're not in the federal prison, in the private prisons, mostly. Well, I ain't going to say mostly. But that's where their biggest contracts come from. Even though you do have states like the state of Louisiana that has contracts with private prison groups that uh, has a clause in there that they have to have an 80% occupancy rate. That means those prison beds got to be 80% full for this contract. And if they're not, you still got to pay us as if those beds were, were full. And that drives incarceration in, in the various states. But where I do agree with Mr. Fleming, and as I told Mr. Fleming, I believe in, in death to this to this this neo-slavery system by a thousand paper cuts. We got people focused on different areas, and those areas are important. And so, you know, when he was telling me about, you know, we really need to focus on those local prosecutor races. And, and getting in, you know, the type of prosecutor that's going to practice justice and not practice neo-slavery. That's not just trying to fill the beds because he knows his state has an 80% occupancy uh, contract uh, with a GO group or a correction corporation of America. Um, but also the state prisons, which, you know, some people think that uh, convict leasing was done away with. No, it wasn't done away with. My little brother was forced to work on a turkey farm when he was locked up in North Carolina. Okay, so that prison, that, that prisoner leasing program is still alive. But again, I do agree with Mr. Fleming that we do need to focus on on the local DA races and you know they need to prioritize get their priorities straight when it comes to public safety and we've seen like Kim Fox in uh Cook County Illinois we've seen Marilyn Mosby and look I don't live in those areas because I got some pushback when I use them as an example for their policy of not uh, uh, prosecuting 
any cannabis convictions. I mean, Marilyn Mosby with as far as I don't care what the weight is. As long as there's no evidence that you are selling the drugs and you just got a quantity of drugs, then I'm not prosecuting those cases. Of course, the, the police in Baltimore said, well, we still going to make the arrest. Well, Kim Fox is talking about expunging the records of those with cannabis convictions. So those are progressive things, but I'm not commenting, commenting on the overall policies of those individual prosecutors' offices because I don't have enough information. So that is what we will be uh, uh, discussing with Mr. Fleming um, here in just a bit. Now, after we get through talking to Mr. Fleming, um, you know, Max, Max, um, Max, I don't know if y'all really know who Max is, but again, Max is the founder of the Grammy-nominated Lifers Group, and I'm just so, you know, thankful that he decided to become a host on New Abolitionist Radio, but y'all might not know that he was one of the pioneers of the program that first appeared on television decades ago. Now, it was called Scared Straight, but that name was thought up by a Hollywood producer who wanted to uh, sensationalize the show so that, you know, it would draw people in to watch. But, you know, Max will tell you once we get to that segment of tonight's program that, no, that he, they didn't come up with that name and they wasn't trying to scare nobody. This was a youth awareness program that was, was intended to talk to the young, young brothers and sisters about why you don't want to end up here. And, you know, the traps out there in the streets that will get you in 21st century slavery and human, and human trafficking. Now, I also wrote an article, and thanks, um, you know, to the people who share that article. That article is titled, Children in South Carolina Abused. Oh, man, my uh, screen messing up. Give me just a second. Um, but I, I saw this video report from my local, a local newspaper. Uh, out of Charlotte, North Carolina called the Charlotte Observer and they issued a, they put up a video report on their YouTube channel and I'm subscribed to their channel. And what I saw in this video, which is in the article that I wrote, um, it was very disturbing to me. And so the article is titled Children in South Carolina Abused by Sheriff and Staff in a Neo-Slavery Plantation Simulation. And, you know, they, they're, they even mentioned you know, the the group that Max and them had started. And this is not what Max intended, what you see in this video, because I'm calling it physical assault, emotional uh, trauma. Um, I've done uh, shared reports out of Dallas, Texas, a jail there where you had a whistleblower was saying some of the children, you know, are even being deprived of food. Um, you know, there's sexual assault that goes on, not just in the uh, ones that's holding these immigrants, because that's big, you know, that's part of the news narrative about the family separations, but it's going on in happening to American children or, or children of U.S. citizens who find themselves caught up in, in this system. So we got a lot to talk about um, tonight. Let me give out the phone number for the callers. The telephone number is 704-802-5056, 704-802-5056. Hit the uh, star key twice to unmute yourself. I'll see you on the board. I'll get your question or, or comment. Please keep your questions and comments 
uh, related to the topics that we're discussing. Ask our guests about, you know, the topic that or, or things that we are discussing. And, and that background noise, please watch your background noise. So, you know, first, let me go ahead and allow Max to chime in. And let me go ahead and, and mute this caller on uh, on the other line. We're not taking calls at this time. I'll let y'all know when when we're taking calls. But let me go ahead and bring in uh, my co-host uh, Maxwell Melvins of the Grammy nominated Lifers Group. Good evening to you, Maxwell. Yes, sir. Good evening, there, uh, brother Scotty. Uh, how's everybody doing? And uh, brother Scotty, I just like to say there may be some callers on there that could possibly expound also on the Lifers Group, others that were involved in the program itself, and some others in their opinion of the subject and topic that we're talking about tonight. I just wanted to let you know. Yes, and, and they, if they are on, I'm sorry, Maxwell. You know, they'll probably they'll be calling in. You, they'll be on your board probably. It may be okay. some callers on there that would like to respond to the issue of this abuse thing and what our program was about too. Right, right. Uh, so, so if you like me to, I, you know, I go into that, or if you want to go on, you know. No, we we have our guests. We we have our guests first. That's the first thing oh, right, that we're right, going to talk about. All right. Yeah, we're going to talk to our guest, Mr. Fleming. Let me make sure this is Mr. Fleming on the line. Mr. Fleming, Rory, do we have So I am here, yes. All right. Mm -hmm. I I was telling Maxwell you said you were looking forward uh, to tonight's program, so I'm sure that you were going to call in. All right. So Yeah, so, so I yeah, you go. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Now, first, if you, you know, I get, I read your brief bio, um, I explained how, you know, me and you met over Twitter, what the conversation mm-hmm. was about. But can you tell them, just give them again a brief overview about what you're working on and, and what your area of expertise that, that you're trying to uh, work in to improve this system that we're under? Yeah, for sure. So um, I graduated from law school at uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in 2015. And then after that, I um, became a legal fellow at the Harvard Law School Fair Punishment Project, which predominantly focused on prosecutorial discretion issues for local district attorneys. And, you know, sometimes they're called county attorneys or prosecuting attorney, but basically the elected chief prosecutor of the county in whatever county or state you're in, um, like I, I was researching those folks and like looking at their policies and their practices trying to analyze them for what could be better, what could be more fair, what could be more racially equitable. And then um, uh, I spent two years there, and now I'm in the election scene for the prosecutors because they are elected in 45 out of 50 states. So my consulting firm, Fog Like Strategies, handles that to try to get the most decarceral, less, less carceral prosecutors in office as possible. So, so basically the purpose of that is that while the legislature makes the law, the, the executive branch, the, uh, the prosecutors in office, you know, the cops arrest people, then takes the, the evidence of the prosecutor, and the prosecutor ultimately makes a decision as to, you know, is this something that we actually want to pursue? Like, do we want to drop this in the interest of justice? You know, like if it's a low-level marijuana thing, we don't want to give somebody a criminal record over it or whatever. Um, do we want to uh, put somebody through a deferred adjudication program so they don't end up with a criminal record? 
Um, and Or, you know, like the, the kind of traditional way of doing it is just like throw the book at everybody, try to get the maximum jail and prison time for everybody because, uh, you know, a lot of prosecutors traditionally would view success as to, uh, you know, what what is their percent of a um, conviction rate in terms of who they charge. So, you know, prosecutors will advertise on campaigns traditionally, like uh, 99% of people I charge will get convicted of the, the top offense that we charge them with. But the reality is that 90, 95% of cases on the state level, which is where the vast majority of criminal cases come from, will end up in a plea agreement. And so, like, does that plea agreement give somebody a felony conviction, whereas, like, they could reasonably plead to a, a misdemeanor and not have the same, like, employment discrimination for the, the rest of their life in many cases? And things like that, you know, like, and so like a good prosecutor will think of those collateral consequences. A bad prosecutor won't care about it and just be like, well, the law is the law and they broke the law as it's written. And so screw them, you know, like, like who cares if they uh, can get a job anymore, you know, like they, they put themselves in that situation. But that's, you know, everyone knows that the income, the, 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 that the outcome of that is uh, racially discriminatory. You know, like there's multiple studies about how um, prosecutors who the elected prosecutors are like 85 or 90 percent white throughout the country. And, you know, in the um, like three thousand, like more like 25,000 counties that exist in America, basically yeah. everybody's county attorney or district attorney is a white yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there's so few black um, district attorneys out there. And like there are, you know, more like, uh, you know, running and taking office. So like, you know, Rachel Rollins in Boston, um, uh, you know, like in Charlotte, North Carolina, there's Spencer, yeah. Spencer Merriweather. Oh, like they, 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 you know, this is something that's like becoming somewhat more common, but like still the overwhelming majority of the district attorneys are privileged white people who have had like a silver spoon their entire life. And, you know, maybe they were like a bullied as a kid, or maybe they, uh, you know, just like were inspired for like, by like, uh, you know, like, um, morally like simple like black and white stories of like i want to be a hero for justice but like not really thinking of like racial dynamics and stuff and like they just they don't really understand what it's like to grow up like um like somebody who's non-white or somebody who doesn't have means and they just like throw the book at everybody and so like my work is really about trying to get people who do understand what the realities of life for so many people in america are and people who will send less people to prison, you know, for like similar crimes and like hopefully reduce mass incarceration. And prosecutors yeah, do are afforded a massive amount of discretion in, ter- yeah. in terms of, uh, dis- you know, discharging their duties. I'd like to ask you a question. Are you familiar with one of the most progressive ones in the nation right now? It's Larry Krasner out of uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, most definitely. Larry Krasner is basically the golden standard, but uh, yes, Rachel is. Rollins in yes, Boston has almost one up them. Yes, yes, but I'm just saying, though, that that's one of, you know, like you were just speaking, the majority of white, this and that and that, but I'm saying he's one of very progressive ones. He just moved himself from the prosecutorial board where you have that United uh, 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 Alliance Association of Prosecutors or something in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. He removed himself from there as well. And in New York, they, right. uh, created a, they just created a board in there to evaluate 
all the prosecutors' conduct. New York was the first in the nation. He mm-hmm. just did this a few months ago. I don't know if you were familiar with that. That New York. Yeah, did, for uh, sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, I am, and it's a very interesting kind of move because the prosecutors' yeah. association is actually suing the state to try to uh, claim that that uh, conduct review board is actually unconstitutional because they don't want yeah. anybody to review what they're doing, which is disgusting. So look, look, I'm sorry, Rory, um, you know, for the terminology that people might be more familiar with, you're talking like these conviction integrity unions like uh, or units in prosecutor office like we saw in Brooklyn, um, also in Texas, where they go back and review these convictions. And it's actually mm-hmm. resulted in people going free. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And so generally the conviction integrity units are focused on like particularly serious crimes like first degree murder or like a first degree rape or something like that um, to see if somebody who has been convicted has actually been wrongfully convicted, um, you know, who's serving like a 30 or life sentence or something like that. Um, but it's, it actually goes beyond that. It actually goes beyond to should certain people be charged for crimes anyway, even though they violated the conduct under the statute, you know, as it's written, but it's like, is it worth actually ruining somebody's life with the stigma of a felony conviction for, like, something that's not actually something that affects public safety? So, like, you know, in a lot of states, if you sell some marijuana to somebody, that's a felony which means that you're going to, like, endure uh, housing discrimination and employment discrimination um, basically permanently, unless you're lucky, you know, you apply for clemency or something, and you get it. And so, so like, in, in Baltimore, for instance, Marilyn Mosby said she's not going to prosecute marijuana possession anymore, regardless of the amounts. Um, same with Larry Krasner. Um, and those Maryland and Pennsylvania, where they, they practice, you know, Marilyn Mosby being in Baltimore, Larry Krasner being in Philadelphia, like they could very well prosecute those things, but they're making the affirmative decision as an executive branch official, as an elected prosecutor, to not uh, seek those sorts of things and focus on serious violent crime. Um, unfortunately, of course, that kind of thing is still relatively rare, but the movement to elect better prosecutors is trying to ensure that there are more prosecutors like that in more cities across the country, even like, say, Texas, where, um, you know, like Kim Ong is the district attorney of Houston right now. She won't prosecute anything involving uh, less than eight or sorry, four ounces of marijuana. She, you know, like worse comes to worse, like somebody arrests you for it and she'll like send somebody to like a four hour class or whatever. Um, But it's really basically decriminalized. Um, and so, like, that kind of thing, you know, like, will the Texas state legislature legalize marijuana anytime soon? Probably not, because there's a ton of legislatures in the, uh, legislators in the state who are, like, blood-red conservative, like, white men who are just like, you know, like, screw people who are into marijuana or whatever, you know? Um, but prosecutors have a unique um, authority to enforce the law how they see fit. Discretion. Which is really something that people haven't paid attention to historically. Yeah, discretion is what you're talking about. They have prosecutorial exactly. discretion. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. You know, one thing, Max, you know, um, 
kind of hinted at. I don't know if this is what he was getting at, but I made a mental yeah. note, you know, when you said was talking about the skin color of different prosecutors because, yeah, most of them are white men. The vast majority of them are white men. But I, I take I take this view, um, uh, Rory. I take this view. doesn't matter what your skin color is. What matters is is how you carry out the duties of that office. Are you carrying it out in a just manner or are you carrying it out in an unjust manner? Because as you know, probably observe on Twitter, um, we got a former prosecutor by the name of uh, Kamala Harris, who's running for president Mm -hmm. right now, who's been taking a task for being those type of prosecutors that, you know, base their success on their conviction rate. Oh, for sure. That's definitely true. And so I, I will say that Kamala Harris definitely was not a, like she was not a progressive prosecutor, she's claimed. I, I think that um, the fact that she has attracted most of the uh, ire is not necessarily completely fair, but I think it makes sense in that she's probably the front runner for the Democratic National Convention uh, based on a lot of factors. But Amy Klobuchar, for instance, just entered. She was uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota's uh, chief prosecutor. She was way worse and a white woman, you know. And so that's an interesting factor. But uh, with Kamala, you know, back in 2004 when she uh, first got elected, you know, this movement to elect better prosecutors wasn't really a thing. Um, And what people often think is like, oh, but San Francisco is so liberal, um, that's not really like in terms of criminal justice. That's not actually true in the sense that um, that yeah, the guy that Kamala Harris beat, uh, who was a white guy who was the incumbent in her first election, which was for district attorney of San Francisco, she did run to the right of him. She accused him of being tough on crime, or sorry, soft on crime for not uh, prosecuting drug dealers to the fullest extent of the law and like not locking up like sex workers. Um, it's, but it's a little complicated because, you know, San Francisco is, like, often thought about as the most progressive city in America. But um, I was actually um, working on um, incumbent DA uh, Georgia Scott's campaign briefly before he uh, – uh, in San Francisco before he said that he wouldn't run again. Um, and, you know, like, Georgia's, like, you know, was seen as, like, one of these, like, first kind of wave of reform prosecutors – um, you know, he's more moderate than like Larry Krasner, but like he was, you know, like trying to move toward a more health oriented approach to the war on drugs rather than a carceral one. And um, and some other things like not like locking up homeless people for like begging for things, you know. Yeah. Um, but like Larry Krasner is more progressive than George Giscon. I mean, that's just that's just true. And, um, and like, what people often miss is, like, California is very, like, you know, progressive on a lot of issues, but not criminal justice. Right. So the interesting thing is that while, like, George Gascon supported a couple of ballot initiatives for, like, state, like statewide voters to vote on, like, to, whether to legalize marijuana or whether or not, uh, whether or not to... Uh, um, back off of the three strikes rule, which meant that if somebody had like a nonviolent third felony or something, that they would get locked up for 25 years to life, which meant that, you know, somebody who stole like a TV or something with a felony record, like would get like life without parole, which is crazy. 
like um, George and like a couple of other DAs in the state like supported like reform of that and re- like um, reform on a couple of other issues. But for the most part, like virtually every single DA in California was like, no way. The third, the three strikes law is awesome and marijuana is the devil. You know, like even George remains neutral on whether or not to legalize marijuana along with one other DA and all the other 62 DAs in California, including in like pretty liberal areas like, like Oakland, you know, they either remained neutral or were adamantly opposed. Right. Um, and so like California is a lot less liberal in criminal justice than people think it is. Like there's a reason that they have like severe prison overcrowding issues. And I think that like Kamala Harris's record should be viewed in terms of that because like, she wasn't particularly progressive when she was in office, and she, the status quo statewide was to be extremely conservative on criminal justice issues. Let, let's do this, Rory. Uh, that, let, yeah. let, let me do this, because I do, you know, I'm a citizen journalist. I don't work for no corporate newspaper or network or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I try to hold myself, you know, to... to I'm not even going to say their standards because a lot of them standards, I don't know what standards of journalism they working from. So I try to be fair and objective. Now, let's use Kamala Harris uh, right now because I'm one of her critics Mm -hmm. and was one of her critics uh, on this radio program, you know, when she was attorney general and the SCOTUS ordered them to, you know, do something to release prisoners to ease the overcrowding as they saw that as an Eighth Amendment uh, violation. She then turned mm-hmm. around. Well, first, her, our, her her office argued. She didn't personally argue when she tried to use that as an excuse. But I don't see it as an excuse because your name, that was your office. And you're not going to tell me you didn't know mm-hmm. what your prosecutors were going to well, argue. Of course you do. At this, and they argued that, hey, if we get rid of, if we reduce our uh, prison population, we'll deprive California of a cheap labor pool. And, of course, a lot of people oh, now yeah. know about the firefighters program. Now, then also, you know, the lying, the the lying, and, and even if it's not straight up lying, it's flip-flopping without context, and it's just dishonesty. One of the things she said about, well, why didn't you come out in favor of legalizing cannabis in California? Well, I had a policy of never commenting on pending legislation because my office had to write this, that, or the other. But then when I go to the California Attorney General website, I see press releases of Kamala Harris uh, uh, supporting and advocating that specific legislation be passed. Uh, um, especially, oh, sure. especially like uh, she was a strong advocate for the civil asset forfeiture where she wanted oh, prosecutors yeah. to be able to take people's property, deprive them of their property without even beginning the process of prosecuting, much less a conviction. So then when the SCOTUS rules against in, in an Indiana case that this is unconstitutional for you to take people's property in this asset forfeiture pro. Then she comes out with, with a Twitter, a tweet as if saying she agreed with them as if she had that position all along. So that's the issue that a lot of people have with her. Did she do some good things? Yes, she did some good things. She did have some of those diversion programs you talked about. So, you know, I'm just trying to be fair and objective, but her the criticism that I'm hearing or the criticism that I have is totally based in facts. 
Yeah, for sure. So it's a complicated issue. Um, so as somebody who has lo- like been a long-term uh, prosecutor watcher, um, it's interesting. You know, Republican district attorneys and Democrat district attorneys or AGs, like attorney generals, they, they are kind of bad on different issues sometimes. So, like, Democrats, like, love civil asset forfeiture, you know, which is kind of fucked up. Like, or, yeah. you know, like, like, excuse my French, but, like, um, like in Massachusetts, for instance, like, every congressman and, and congresswoman in Massachusetts is a Democrat. But, um, you know, they, they have never challenged civil asset forfeiture. I mean, like, you know, Joe Kennedy III was actually a prosecutor in the biggest Massachusetts county, and uh, the Massachusetts district attorneys loved civil asset forfeiture because they used that to fund law enforcement investigations. But it the reality millions, is that civil asset – right. It's a, it, I mean, it's so much money. Like in Manhattan, for instance, in New York City – the district attorney there could probably, uh, his name is Cy Band, he could solve poverty in New York City tomorrow by just divesting his civil asset forfeiture fund because he prosecutes big banks that gets like, you know, billions of dollars from them. And instead of, say, solving poverty, he's created a um, global cybercrime summit with like Belgium and France, you know, like who cares? Like, um, Like he could literally, you know, like, augment people's wages if he felt like it and uh, solve people wanting, like, you know, trying to ride the subway for free, for instance, um, which he has said that he won't prosecute now, but he still occasionally does. So civil asset forfeiture is a complicated thing because the activists that are predominantly fighting against it in courts and stuff are actually Republicans, uh, believe it or not. Yeah, Republicans and Libertarians. Uh, that's been well, a right. libertarian exactly. issue. Exactly, exactly. And so it's they, kind they of, just, you know... They just ruled on that, the Supreme Court, didn't they, about, about a month ago, a couple of weeks ago? They that, did, that, yeah. So legal. I think that things may change. Um, yeah. But I think that uh, the orthodoxy of the law enforcement profession was yeah. that you just do it and take the money and don't care if people will actually ultimately be convicted of the crime and because it's convenient and it's a great yeah. funding source. And, you know, you don't have to deal with the legislature. You just uh, literally do it all through yourself. So, I mean, that's one thing. With the um, other stuff she did as attorney general, when, when we were talking about Kamala Harris, it's interesting because, uh, you know, um, Basically, Kamala Harris's worst thing that she probably did as an attorney general, in my opinion at least, is um, defend rampant prosecutorial misconduct from the elected district attorneys on the county level yes. in California, which, you know, uh, like, you know, Los Angeles County, for instance, that's 10 million people. That's the equivalent of like the whole state of Ohio or the whole state of North Carolina. Um, like sometimes they would commit prosecutorial misconduct and Kamala Harris would go straight up to bat for them and be like, there's no misconduct here. Um, and like in Orange County, which is uh, 3 million people in California, the former district attorney, Tony Rakakis, was probably the most unethical district attorney in America. He literally had a unconstitutional jailhouse informant scheme where he would literally plant certain people into certain cells in the local jail to get that person to get time shaved off their sentence by interrogating their cellmate and being like, you better confess. And so, like, that's not actually constitutional at all. 
And this had been going on for like a decade. And, um, and so it actually messed up the most slam dunk death penalty case probably ever, which involved this guy. Uh, it was like the, they called it the, the Seal Beach uh, Massacre. And so this guy, Scott DeCry, um, got like a machine gun or something and like mowed down like eight people and like five or six of them died. You know, it was like a classic spree shooting kind of thing. Um, and instead of just like, you know, like California has the death penalty and a lot of the more conservative counties believe in it, believe it or not. And, um, and like if the DA just like prosecuted ethically, like, Scott DeCry would have gotten the death penalty slam dunk. And I, I, I'm an expert in the death penalty issues. Um, I, I worked on those issues at Harvard, and, like, it was a, like, I don't agree with the death penalty, but it was a slam dunk case in terms of the law. Tony Rakonkis, the district attorney of Orange County, who's elected, but he lost re-election in 2018, thank God, um, he cheated. He, he actually, like, literally planted an informant in there to, like, coax a confession, a confession but everyone, know this, everyone knew that this dude did it. Um, and, like, Kamala Harris was, like, right up to bat being, like, Tony Rukakis's office didn't commit any misconduct in this case. But, like, everyone and the grandmother knew. Like, anyone who was familiar with this case at all knew that, like, that was complete BS. I don't know. Um, and so, like... Like, Kamala Harris should have let Tony Rukakis go to jail, frankly. Like, that yeah. man deserves to be in prison, and he's not. Yeah, and I also read, and this isn't just specific to Kamala Harris, um, but Annie Dukins comes to mind, the corrupt oh, yeah. uh, lab technician. This, um, this was also an issue here in North Carolina. I can't remember the lab technician's name where he was over the entire lab, um, and he was a zoologist. He hadn't even taken any kind of forensic classes or training right. or anything. Um, but Kamala Harris, I read that, you know, they had a similar issue in the drug lab, and she even defended those, you know, convictions, knowing that, you know, you had That's this, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Max... As like an ethical prosecutor at AG would have just dropped that stuff, but, but Kamala Harris, I, you know, just kind of like signed off on all of it, kind of assuming the status quo of California's uh, right. uh, licensing agency for attorneys never disciplines prosecutors. You know, right. like it just and that's a problem throughout the country that is really difficult to solve. But, you know, the people who are at those agencies who prosecute like lawyers, basically, to get their licenses taken away, they're all like kind of prosecutorial minded people. And so they, they, they don't generally find um, these cases particularly important. But, yeah, no, Kamala like did all kinds of um defending of that kind of issue and in massachusetts i mean it's really messed up because um yeah annie dukey and you're bringing her up and she was uh one of the two chemists who um was fraudulently um testing like all like thousands and tens of thousands of drug cases and just like pretending like oh you know like um it said that there was some cocaine in there so like we're going to pretend that like the 80 grams of the sample is all cocaine uh, even though, like, you know, maybe it was, like, 20 grams or something. Like, she wasn't actually testing it. She was, like, eyeballing it. Okay. And, and like, there was another chemist, uh, Sanja Farak, who was literally taking the drugs. Um, and so they both went to prison for a couple of years, but they caused the biggest mass exoneration in American history um, involving tens of thousands of cases. 
And um, no one got in trouble for it except the lab technicians. The reality is I actually have a friend, um, Jamie Folk, who lives in uh, Massachusetts in the Boston metro area, who is um, prepping a book on this issue. But, yeah, no, like, he has these amazing records. Like, he was doing public records requests against the uh, state attorney general and the district attorney's offices for years, and he's painted this amazing picture in his book draft, uh, and I've seen the emails as well that he's gotten the agencies to send him. The prosecutors totally knew what was going on, and none of them got in trouble. In fact, one of them was like, Annie Dukin, the fraudulent lab chemist, was like infatuated with uh, this one prosecutor on the sexual level and was just like, you know, trying to say anything to impress him. And he just like let her do it, basically. Like, he was like, oh, this is awesome. I get to lock up people for more time. And um, when my, my uh, friend and colleague, uh, Jamie Folk, um, you know, he got to know this former prosecutor who like, I uh, used to say, like, oh, I want to be in the FBI, but then after this whole thing broke, he got fired and he became a defense attorney. Like, um, you know, when when the this guy found out that Jamie Polk was writing a book and was including him in it, like, he threatened him with a lawsuit, which is the typical prosecutor thing to do. They really hate accountability. Yeah. And uh, they're That's used the to bullying people. And so, I, I mean, like, until the system gets better and like the legal licensing bodies actually disbar or suspend prosecutors for long periods of, periods of time for like hiding evidence in cases or like willfully relying on fraudulent testimony or lab results like like I personally would never vote for a uh, former prosecutor for higher office whether that be Congress or governor or president like you know like Kamala Harris like is out like I'll vote for her personally as a Democrat if she uh, if she wins the general but uh, like over Trump but I would never vote for her in the primary and same with Amy Klobuchar because she was Minneapolis's head prosecutor and in her first year she doubled the sentences for for nonviolent drug crime wow and she unlike Kamala Harris like she's literally never apologized she well, literally has never said, like, hey, I'll legalize marijuana, or, like, maybe I was wrong back then. And, and that's also, you know, with Kamala, she doesn't apologize. But listen, we're coming to the close of this interview. Maxwell, I've been talking a lot, man. Did you have anything that you wanted to ask? No, nah, I was, I'm pretty uh, satisfied with, you know, everything that, you know, he was, uh, you know, I agree basically with everything that he was saying, and, uh, you know, I didn't have any, you know, particular questions, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I don't know if he's familiar with some of the stance and, and New Jersey's trying to lead their way a little bit with these progressive things, too, now. As I said, New Jersey is trying to restore all voting rights right now to mm-hmm. all former prisoners and people on parole right now. New Jersey also legalized marijuana. You know, mm-hmm. they, they're also uh, taking a stance on that right now. And uh, I just wanted to know how did he feel about the state of New Jersey in particular as far as prosecutor misconduct and different things? Do you, do you have yeah. any information on that with New Jersey? Yeah, so it's an interesting kind of thing because in New Jersey, it's actually uh, fascinating because New Jersey is one of the five states in America that does not elect prosecutors. And so they're not as influenced by, like, media and stuff like that, though most of them tend to be cons- relatively conservative. But the legislature 
is more progressive on these issues and they don't have the same level of sway like the prosecutors mm -hmm. and the legislature. So basically it's New Jersey, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Alaska, and Delaware do not elect prosecutors um, in, and, and I don't remember, you know, like exactly how it works, but like in terms of, I'm pretty sure if I recall that uh, the, either the governor's or the office or the AG appoints the individual um, chief prosecutors in like each of those states. Um, and so like, you know, in terms of um, like the the war on drugs, yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely prosecutors in New Jersey who believe in that. Like in, in Ocean County, Joe Coronado said that uh, if somebody's caught overdosing on uh, heroin on the street, yeah, that the yeah. solution is to um, give them Narcan to save their life, but then deport them to Arizona while the tears the teardrops are still warm, is what he said, which is disgusting. I mean, that's like a you know, that's like really, uh, you know, pr pretty non-empathetic in my opinion. Um, yeah. Like people, you know, like I believe in treatment, obviously, but I think that um, that like shipping them off to a state like 2,000 miles away from their family is kind of not a nice way to do it. Um, so, I mean, like there's still issues, but I think that um, because there's less of this locally elected kind of dynamic, um, they're a little bit less radical. Uh, uh, like they're seen as they're basically just cops with law degrees, whereas in a lot of states, um, the problem is that the legislatures just like bend over backward, like having to do with anything that district attorneys say, and especially the district attorneys association, which is like the the bigger body that takes a majority of vote on like whether or not yeah. to support X or Y legislation. So like in New York, for instance, right now. They're trying to like um, improve pretrial discovery, which is which means like you know somebody's accused of a crime. The police have some evidence. The prosecutor gets that evidence in in like every state except New York and three other states, um, which is like South Carolina, Wyoming, and one other that I'm forgetting right now. Um, the prosecutors are supposed to actually just like deliver the evidence that they have to the defense, so the defense can actually provide a adequate defense. In New York, they literally ambush the defendants and the defense lawyer the day of trial and say, like, hey, here's what we've got against them. You figure it out in the next, like, hour or something, which is just completely psychotic. But, like, the, like the most of the district attorneys in New York State are opposing um, moving it to what 46 other states have, the vast majority of the country, because, like, it would make their jobs slightly harder and their conviction right. rates would maybe suffer a little bit. And honestly, every district attorney in New York state sucks, basically. Like, you know, like historically speaking, like the Albany district attorney, who's the black man, like was like cool with reforming some mandatory minimum sentences on drug crimes in the early 2000s. He's gotten more conservative since. Um, and then like, you know, like a couple of the district attorneys in the New York City area, like uh, Cy Vance in Manhattan and Eric Gonzalez said, you know, we're not going to prosecute marijuana anymore, mm -hmm. for instance. But they lied. <laughs> they literally lied, expecting reporters to not follow up on it because generally people, like reporters, will like pay that much attention to criminal justice, though it's improving. And so, you know, like they've really reduced marijuana prosecutions by like 10 to 20%. 
but they're lying and saying that they decriminalized marijuana using prosecutorial discretion. And like some DAs, like like you know Larry Krasner, for instance, isn't going around prosecuting marijuana cases, but like Cy Vance or Eric Gonzalez in New York City are totally like so prosecuting those offenses. And uh, uh, part of the reason we know that is because this not this um, community group in New York City, Court Watch, New York City has been, like, going to court and, like, watching the prosecutors and tweeting about their uh, their activities in real time in open court. And so, like, we know. Hey, hey <laughs> and, Rory. Like, one of the problems is, yeah. Yeah, Rory, one, one last question, and then we'll let you give us, mm-hmm. you know, your final comments and yeah. and yeah, how people sure. can support your work in, in getting more progressive policies in these district attorney and prosecutor offices but what can what what do you what do you recommend to just the average Joe citizen like myself? You know, how can I affect change at my local prosecutor's office? Yeah, for sure. That's that's a good question. Um, I think that um, doing presentations and potentially protests at the prosecutor's office tends to get them get their attention and not necessarily in like a bad way, but like, they'll be like, Oh, okay. Like people aren't necessarily happy about this. Um, it's, it's hard for the common person to like get through to some of the bigger, like more urban counties though, because, uh, the, the, the way that the model kind of works is that say, you know, like I've worked for district attorney candidates in, like everywhere from Boston to New York City to rural Wisconsin, you know, like county of like 30,000 people. In rural Wisconsin, anyone who has a problem with the DA can literally just walk up to the DA's desk because there's like two prosecutors in the county. Um, like if you're in a more urban county, it's harder and there's more red tape. And that's why like protests are happening, like uh, especially involving like police shootings, because like that's the only way to get their attention. It's it's a messed up system. Um, I think that one thing besides like, you know, protesting or like inviting uh, prosecutors in the county to like local community forums um, that people can do more, and it involves a little bit of work, but not too much, is like learning about how one can file via email, just like emailing, like public records requests or like what people often call like FOIA, like Freedom of Information Act request, which is basically like, hey, like as a, as a private citizen in the, like, you know, and in most states you can be uh, anywhere in the country, you know, you just have to file it. It's like, hey, like district attorney, like dear X, like I am doing a like public information request, like seeking information on say um, prosecution rates of marijuana based on or something, and some district attorneys will give the information, some won't, which um, is generally a bad sign, um, but, like, at that point, then you can call, like, say, like, the local, like, ACLU chapter, or, like, the state ACLU would be like, hey, like, you know, that district attorney doesn't, like, comply with Freedom of Information um, Act requests, which is something that they're supposed to do by law, I mean, like, but it's definitely, like, something that, like, one can get more information on what exactly is going on and then, like, give more information to local community groups on, like, what is actually going on. But, like, yeah, I mean, like, I've had everything from the DA's office giving me everything on every policy to, say, in Baltimore County, Maryland, so not where, 
Marilyn Mosby is the state's attorney, but uh, the suburban like circle around Baltimore, um, that's uh, state attorney uh, Scott Schellenberger, and he's he's awful, super conservative, but like nominally a Democrat. Like one time, my former employer did a public information request to him. And, like one of the things we asked was. Uh, you know, give us a list of all your uh, prosecutors, like by name. And he he gave a six-page legal memo of, I refuse to even release the names of our prosecutors in the office, which is absolutely illegal. But like, we didn't feel like suing over it. But at the same time, that's something that the media should do. So like, getting that kind of stuff and like taking it to the media is a really strong strategy because like. The district attorneys and state's attorneys or whatever they're called in your individual states, like in North Carolina, their district attorneys, they respond to public criticism because of the fact that they're like locally elected officials. They're like mm. the mayor or something like that. But um, but they put people in jail and prison. It's the district. Okay. So I think that people, yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's a number of things, but it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do either. Okay. So key key there is actually file for information to find out exactly what they're doing. You know, like like right. Yeah, okay. I got you. I got you. Uh Max, did you have any final questions before um No, I'd just like to uh thank him for taking the time to come out and you know, as you said, if he have any uh, last comments he'd like to make and you know, to let people know available if necessary, like get in contact with him, he can provide his information to our listeners out there. Yeah, for sure. So my, uh, I'm very active on Twitter at uh, Rory Fleming, 8A, R-O-R-Y-F-L-E-M, as a new I-N-G, 8A, um, as an Eighth Amendment uh, against cruel and unusual punishment. Um, I, um, yeah, so like, you know, I've opened uh, direct messages. People can uh, send me messages whenever they want. Um, I, I watch district attorneys and district attorney races throughout the country, um, partly for work, partly as a hobby because I care about it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, you know, like even if I'm not working on a race as a political um, operative, I do write articles uh, like kind of as a whistleblower on different district attorneys throughout the country. Yeah. Um, so I'm de- I, I think that, um, you know, it's definitely something that um, that can empower people without – you know, like a law degree or whatever to like get involved because the thing is like these officials are ultimately um, answerable to the people. And for a long time, you know, these uh, these offices would go politically unchallenged for like 15, 20 years and it would be the same guy in office for like forever and uh, people would even forget they're elected. And so like, I mean, part of it is just like finding somebody who's a lawyer to run against them, but also like keeping the media informed us in terms of uh, what they're actually doing, which is often like pretty bad and horrific and like against what most people actually want, but they just like see it as the status quo and say that so they just do it without thinking about the moral I got, I'm I'm sorry, Rory. One last question before you go. It's not really a question, but I want your legal opinion. The the 13th Amendment says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment Mm -hmm. for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. What's your legal analysis of that text? Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
I think what the Constitution is, the Constitution says what it says, but uh, states um, are starting to actually uh, put ballot questions on the ballots to repeal that part of the thir uh, 13th Amendment as to its application to the states. So, for instance, like Colorado had a ballot am amendment in uh, either 2016 or 2017 to uh, ban prison slavery. Um, and I'm, if I recall, um, a majority or vast majority of people in Colorado actually supported that. Um, I'll be honest as a political operative that I think that like that would be something that would would potentially work in a lot of other states. I think sadly enough, considering California is the biggest state in the union, that Californians may actually be split on the issue, which is gross, um, especially because we're having like people um, who are incarcerated forced to like fight like forest fires and like dangerous incidents like that without pay and then they don't even, they're not even able to get the professional licenses to become firefighters because of yeah. felonies uh, which is just horrifying and uh, but i think that like you know at the same time california just repealed the uh the felony murder rule under common law which is like say if like four people rob a store or something and one person yeah. shoots the clerk they all get I a murder rule yeah, exactly. And so, like, California got rid of that. So, I mean, like, I think that uh, that all of this stuff is worth fighting for all the time. Um, it won't always win immediately, but I think ultimately we're no. moving in the right direction. And, but uh, um, Jerry Brown has been doing pretty good out there, and I like to say this. He's one of the only governors who had a chance to go in, mess the law when he created that, but the only one in the longest survivor in the United States to go back and change something and still be in office to change what he messed up. He's the one that it's had very to true. And he's the only one that had a chance to still be in the seat to change what he messed up when he created that. It's definitely you know, and, true. And, and California yeah. has a, is, a, is a bigger progressive movement out there as far as uh, mass incarceration and criminal justice right now because you got the people, you got all these organizations out there, people taking to the streets, so they're getting a lot of uh, different things, uh, uh, the band, the box, and, you know, as a result, they got a couple bills up pending right now in California as far as, uh, they have some bills pending as far as, uh, you know, the employment and everything, you know, they got so mm -hmm. many bills pending out there right now, and they're actually being passed and signed mm -hmm. right now. Well, that, right. that's great. Yeah, that's great. it's an interesting situation because the the prosecutors in California for all of their uh, fire and fury against reform, uh, the legislators often are just deciding now that they don't care, um, which is pretty yeah. different than a lot of states because, let's say, you're like Pennsylvania's or your Ohio's or North yeah. Carolina's or you know, the prosecutors say whatever the heck they want, and the legislators, they're like, okay, prosecutors, we don't want to piss you off. Right, right. But, but it's yeah, no, it's people. true. It's, it's, the, progress. It's, it's, it's the grassroots organizations, though, that are taking to this, all these organizations out there that are representing, like in this criminal, criminal yeah. justice movement right now, and is really making a change. I'm just hoping New Jersey will be one of the states to follow, and some of the other ones will be, uh, you know, as a result of that, because... You know, as a result of the people having those criminal convictions and different things, do you know there are over a hundred different collateral consequences as a result of that to prohibit you from housing? Oh from yeah, it's, it's horrifying. It's so many different uh, collateral consequences, uh, you know. All right, well, yeah, and in a lot of cases, it's 
more than that. Yeah, no. And so I, I, the legislative movement is really encouraging. And I think that um, people should organize on a grassroots level to make the strongest coalitions and strongest groups that they can. And like, just like, you know, talk to the legislature as much as possible, talk to their local district attorneys as much as possible and try to just move the ball. Because I think that we're in kind of a watershed moment right now where, where change is more possible than it ever has been. And if that's because those people want to get it, but remember this, there's a catch, 22. A lot of reasons, and some of the reasons that these people are changing these things now, because they're realizing all these big organizations, some are the same people, they're getting a favor back. Elections is coming up and different things are coming Definitely. up. So Definitely. They that so they, you know, they're, they're, they're cooperating. Because as you just said earlier, who do they answer to? Who do they re- represent? The people. Right, right. People, so yeah. They, they, have to, they have to answer to the people. So, Rory, um, I'm going to stay in touch with you, but I, I want to leave the door open. If there is something that you, you know, believes is appropriate to bring to our listening audience, something that catches your mm-hmm. eye or anything, please, you got my contact information. Hey, we, we would love to have you back as a regular, you know, on New Abolitionist Radio. Awesome. I would love that. Thank you. I'm honored. All right. Yes. Well, you have a good evening, sir, and thank you again for the work that you're doing behind the scenes and, and you know, the media that you're producing, and definitely I'll keep following you, but you have a good night, sir. Yeah. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was a pleasure, and uh, yes, thank you so much. All right. Uh, Max, we're going to go ahead and take our station identification break. And just to let the listeners know, we're going to open up the phone lines. If y'all have any comments on what we just discussed with Mr. Rory uh, Fleming, give us a call, 704-802-5056, and hit the star key twice, that'll unmute you, and I'll bring you on. When we come back on the other side, um, if we don't have any calls and, and, you know, um, even... Even though we're jumping to another topic, um, if you still want to yeah. comment on the first hour, uh, you definitely can do that. But when we come back, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, I wrote that article, as I talked about at the top of, of the discussion about this program um, that I'm, I'm calling a, a prison uh, a neo-slavery plantation simulation going on in Chester County. Oh. South Carolina, and you know, it, it's basically child abuse. It's, it's, it is child abuse. It's not basically child abuse. It's child abuse because, you know, I got, I have a niece that lives in Chester County and she's having some issues. You know, she's, she's a teenager. She's only 12 years old. Actually, she's not a teenager yet. And she's having some issues getting in trouble at school and stuff like that. And, and we're trying to talk to her and figure out what the problem is and get her on the right path. But let me tell you, if I did to her or her mother did to her or her father did to her or her grandmother did to her, what we see in these video, in that video, they will be coming to separate her from us. And put her in the system. And so it's not right that these these jailers are doing this to these kids. And we'll talk about that on the other side. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio, broadcasting on the Black Talk Radio Network, live programming every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at blacktalkradionetwork.com. And welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. Maxwell, we got a call. Um, we got a call. It looks like out of New Jersey. Uh, the name that's yeah. on the board is Poochie. Uh, thank you for yeah. calling in, Poochie. Did you have a question or comment for us? Yes, I have a comment about uh, the video that I've seen and uh, the name they're trying to use, Scared Straight, and implemented across the country. Because once they took it outside of our prison system because it was being successful, we had a bunch of county jails that's still using it across New Jersey, and they're, like you say, abusing the children. It wasn't our goal. It wasn't our desire no our design to be abusive, right? We uh, verbally tried to explain to them what the situations in front of them was going to be if they continue to get caught up in the situations. Mm-hmm. What we see here in New Jersey, because New Jersey, y'all just mentioned, it's a small state between two giants. So if you're in the northern part of New Jersey, you get influenced by the laws in New York. If you're in the southern part, you get influenced by what's coming out of Pennsylvania, right? And both of those states during the 80s, when they got in the mindset of teenage predators, increased different laws. Uh, Donald Trump took the whole thing at the Central Park uh, incident, which we found to be untruthful, put a whole article in the paper about predator teenagers. So now what they're doing, when I went in the institutions at 12, we was in juvenile facilities. Now they build in juvenile mass facilities. Like y'all seen in the video, them boys is in the same thing that the max men in Trenton State Prison is in. They're made the same way. They got them in the same cells with the same stairwells and the same design. We was able to go out. We had air. We had movement. We went out to go to eat. These guys are getting fed in their cells. So it's not just the physical abuse that they're doing. It's the psychological abuse that they impose it. And what then happened is they made the people buy into it. Right, you know, right, and right. It, and, I, and I keep explaining to the people here in Paston, New Jersey, y'all keep talking about reentry. Y'all trying to help the guys coming out of prisons and stuff. What about the kids? that end up in prison. But when I was in Jamesburg, them juvenile facilities at 12 years old, by the time I got to state prison, I could safely say 75 to 80% of the boys that was in Jamesburg with me ended up in the prison. So these same guys that we're trying to help as adults started out as juveniles. So the juvenile facilities is just like a car repair. If you take your car to a shop, they're supposed to fix it. So if these kids are supposed to go to these juvenile facilities and they come out worse, then something is a problem. And it's not the kid. When I was on your show last month, I explained that's my mindset. If you see them at six, seven, and eight, you see they're not a problem. Then at 14, you talking about their prayer tour, you want to wave them up to a jailhood. New Jersey has so many young men, just like all across the country, that went in as juveniles, they got waved up to a devil, they got 30 years in prison, 40 years in prison from 14 years old. 
So that's what they're doing. They're taking our children and they're using them as the new product. Hey, Poochie. Yeah, Poochie, let's let's do this. Please stay on the line with us, uh, brother, for as long as you can because you was part of of the program that was actually trying to help these children and not harm them. But let me introduce it to our audience because, you know, I have the video. I'm going to play the video so they can hear it for themselves. But I wrote an article. I published it early this morning. I saw this last night, and it bothered me so bad. I was like, I got to write about this. So I wrote, you know, I spent about two hours writing, writing this article to get my words right and, and be codified because I actually was like, man, I want to go down there and hurt them guards for hurting them children. So, you know, yeah. let me introduce it to the audience. We'll play the video and then we'll come back and let you and Maxwell uh, respond to what the audience is going to hear. But let me just give this opening paragraph of my article. Neo-slavery simulations, do they help or harm troubled children? That is the question that people should be asking themselves. It is a question I'm asking rhetorically because I know the answer is yes. They are harmed by the abuse they suffer at the hands of guards in detention facilities across the United States, like the one in Dallas, Texas, which is a story that escaped the attention of national media because perhaps Mr. Beto O'Rourke does not seem to have the same concern for U.S. citizens' children as he does for those children separated at the border from their families. For some reason, the family separations and abuse of children who are U.S. citizens aren't as big of a story that it warrants the attention of the national news networks who have devoted an untold number of hours towards reporting on immigrant children during the Trump administration. So my local paper, Charlotte Observer, visited one of these programs, just the name of that program and 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 again like you said they trying to use the name and make it seem like it was like y'all's program when it's not like the program y'all started project storm a scared straight jail program for at-risk children and teens run by the chester county sheriff in South Carolina is abuse, some say. It has been on the A&E Network TV show, Beyond Scare Straight. So this is, what you're about to hear is a video report from the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charlotte Observer. Here we go. Tell me why you think your parents brought you here. Because I was being disrespectful and lying and stealing, and my act wasn't right. called the storm program showing teens our real mission this is about keeping this child out of the penitentiary and it's about helping this child be successful Get your 
No, just some psychologists. <laughs> Clearly, somebody thought this was a good idea. Um, and yet we're in 2019. The data to show that this was ineffective was published in 2002. I think it was probably well intended when they started it in New Jersey, as I understand, is where it began in the 70s. Um, it looks good politically. It looks good publicly. Hey, we're doing something with these kids and young people, even young adults that are that are off track. But again, when you study the programs, they really haven't worked. But they continue to go on for one simple reason: they they look good. You see the guy up here with his arm hanging off the top rail. Y'all remember Toby? When you come here as an inmate, I will own you. Don't think this can't happen to me. It can. This is your last chance. After that, you're gonna be right back here with me. Beyond Scared Straight, all new Thursday at ten on A and It appears from the evidence that we're more likely to create a criminal from that behavior than we would if we hadn't exposed them to it. Some of those children have been previously traumatized. They may grow up in drug abusing households. They may have parents that are divorced. They may have been victims of emotional or physical abuse previously, and those children are particularly vulnerable to adverse consequences from this. The evidence for that kind of program is actually that it's harmful. That in 10 or 12 randomized studies that have been done back in the 90s and 2000s, I guess 80s and 90s, looking at scared straight as effectiveness for delinquency prevention, um, the kids who were, who were randomized to get that prevention were 70% more likely to become delinquent or, uh, than the kids who didn't get that intervention. I think that anybody can really do a study and kind of turn it the way they want it to turn. Um, you really had to be involved. I mean, put it this way, I can sit back and read all the paperwork I want and, and, and get in all the stats that I want on something to form an opinion. But once you actually physically do it and, and see how it comes out, then I, I think you'll see a different result from this study. If we did some of this uh, to adults, uh, some people might call that torture and it might qualify as torture. Even if we had prisoners of war, I'm not sure that uh, there would be a consensus that this is an acceptable approach. That treatment that they were seeing um, would probably trigger a mandatory report to Child Protective Services if the parents were doing it or a caregiver were doing it. When they call it abusive, what do you say? Do you think it's abusive? No, I don't. I don't. I, I, I think, like I said again, the mission is to keep these kids from going to prison. And I, I think that if they want to say it's abuse, then they need to do a study on the prison system itself and, and see what inmates do to youth when they come into the prison you system. You could make the argument, and I know social services agencies that would respond that that treatment is, was clearly abusive to the children. Okay, I'm I'm gonna cut it. I'm gonna cut it off there. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote a pretty lengthy article. Well, it wasn't that long, so I've said what I wanted to say. But you know, they're talking about something um, that Maxwell and Pucci was a part of 
back in the 70s, and there is a big difference, and I don't think, you know, from me talking to Maxwell, that, you know, that program is reflected accurately because Maxwell and them was not putting their hands on these children and, and, and doing the things that we see, um, you know, just inhumane treatment that we see these guards doing to these children. So I'm going to shut up. And I'm going to let Maxwell and Poochie uh, comment on what they think about this situation. Well, uh, I've seen the video and I read your article, but Maxwell had put me up on it earlier today. So I read it. And uh, they give the impression, or this guy talking about he's showing them what the inmates, inmates don't do that to inmates. It's the biggest gang in any prisons in New Jersey and probably across America is the PBA. The police do that, right? The inmates is not allowed to do that. They got a show on called OG, right? Somebody told me to watch it on HBO. I watched it and I almost got sick to the stomach, you know, of the betrayal that they're trying to make the prisoners be the animals. You have a bunch of young men in late 80s in today's market, because in the 70s and the 60s when we were starting this stuff, it wasn't that many females going to prison. But now they grab them, they're grabbing them, and it's the same madness where the staff intimidate. So that's where most of your gangs get created, your MS-13s, your Latin Kings, all these gangs they say started inside prisons because inmates have to come together not to protect themselves from other inmates, but the police, the PBA. So when they come home, they have no respect for law enforcement because they seen what was done to them by these guys in uniforms and with badges, right? They are the abusers. So they come in there, and like I said on your show last month, they have their tendencies of satism, masochism, and they got a confined, controlled environment where they could get this off on. You know, they just like to be us. When I first went up in Trenton State Prison, we might have had like six or seven black officers. The rest of them was Caucasians. The black officers, guys like a Bobby White and all the they was the worst enemy because they still trying to prove I'll get a master. I ain't going to show them. I ain't down with them. And this guy, the way he was talking, he was the same monster. I've seen the whole thing all over again. He is an African-American man talking about how he's going to break a buck, how he's going to stop them from going to the prison. And if you go back 10 years later, 90% of them kids or 80% that he had in his storm program would be inside the prison programs. He's not breaking them. He's not. He's just making them more angrier. He's making them untrustworthy. If we trust that the Lord's going to serve and protect us inside those facilities, and they be the ones who abuse us, when you get out, you have no respect for them whatever. Quick story. There was a guy named Hopkins in Jamesburg that used to abuse us. And we was in North Boys, and one day, God came up to the milk bar, we was on Street Street, and said, yo, I just seen Hopkins down the street. What? And we went down there, and we sat around for like an hour, and when he came out the building, we beat him up. We bust his back for all the abuse that he had gave us. You know, so 
these things that they trying to betray and trying to use the terminology of scared scrape. Because you got it out here in Mars County Jail. You got them in different county jails across New Jersey. And they're just doing the same thing as getting money off our kids. Those that's part of that program get extra pay, extra hours for being participants, the cops. So they say, yeah, I'll sign up. Now you get extra pay, you get extra hour, you get extra rent. You walk around with your chest out because you the one that's abusing and can abuse the kids. And when they go to court, that's another thing. Pass in New Jersey, when they lock these little young boys up, if you're 14, you get caught with a weapon, a gun, or a knife, they want to wave you up to adulthood. Right? When them little boys go to court, they know nothing about law. A lot of them even can't spell indictment. And when they go there, they're been the dire waved up in the court. It's empty. You might have three people that's from their family sitting there. We need to get in them courthouses and listen and see what they're doing to our babies. Because you can't send them away. Somebody, we're going to send them away. He come back five years later worse than he went in. Like I said, if it was an old dealership, you take your car, come back worse, you will have a problem. You'll be trying to sue. You'll be mad. So why not be mad about your children coming back from these institutions, so-called juvenile facilities, which is really adult max prisons, coming back worse than they went in, and we good with it. You know, so I'm, I'm down with whatever to try to save the babies and stop this fake stuff going around trying to live off of what we have positive ideas and structure to do to try to help. And it always happens. Every time we set something up in them prisons that try to help, they want to snatch it and talk about they could do it and they don't have the plans. All they see is the beginning of it. They don't know what the end plan was, so they just make it up as they go along and it tends to be abusing our children. Maxwell, good, absolutely. Yeah, because I you know me, I'll go all fucking year. Excuse my French. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I like I was saying, the way they portraying Gary Street, as I said, the name Street was given to that program by Hollywood, one of the Hollywood producers. A lot of people weren't really familiar with all the work the Lifers Group was doing, so that's just one documentary. But out the Gary Street program. You know, it, it was called a juvenile awareness program. It was never intended to scare those kids. We was only trying to instill values in them. We were just being examples of what we did not want them to become, and that was to become like us and so that they wouldn't have to relive our lives again. And what the public mm-hmm. also didn't know is that we had a juvenile hotline that was open all the time. These kids could call yes. us up and talk to us on the yes. phone. And we also used to do one-on-one counseling with them and stayed in touch with these juveniles. Yes. Not only yes. that, we also had a college awareness forum that students used to come in that were majoring in criminal justice, used to come in to discuss the difference between theory and reality of prison. And what we could do that a professor or book couldn't do was give them the first-hand experience of what the criminal justice system was about, why some of us ended up where we ended up. And with them being the future judges and prosecutors, we would try to give them ideals so that they can incorporate that when they became those prosecutors, lawyers, 
and different judges. We also had yes. a parental awareness program for parents to make parents aware of certain uh, behaviors of their children to help them identify with who your child was hanging with. What type of music was your kid listening to? What kind of clothing was he wearing? What was his behavior? So that would help the parents identify, you know, they can, it would give them pretty much an ideal of where their kid mindset was. So, you know, again, what, we had all types of things going on. That scare straight thing was nothing compared to the work that the Lifers Group was doing. And yes. the Lifers Group and originally well, started. Go ahead, Max. Excuse started, me. Go ahead. I, I, I say the, the Lifers Group originally was started because you had uh, short-termers and other uh, programs and people inside the prison that had all these programs available to them. But for long-term, they had nothing available to them. And, and it was done for means and as a vehicle to be able to reach legislative and to advocate for long-term offenders. That's what the Lifers Group really developed. And at the time, there was some of the Lifers was experiencing problems with their own kids. So they thought of these college kids and them was coming in. Why can't we bring our own kids? And we're not home to protect them and lead them and guide them. So that's where the concept that's came up for the Juvenile Awareness Program. Even the guy who started, started the toy drive, which was started at Broadway yes. State Prison, we, we had, he was a lifer. You know, we always Great tried role. to help. He, would, he started out uh, getting toys so when the people who come on visits, they could get toys for their children. Around Christmas time and holidays, we had group jobs of toys available for the kids that's coming in. We had a kid area in our visiting area where, you know, Every the children day. could go play. They could get lessons. They could learn things. Our goal was to help. But what happened, like Cohen today, uh, the, the Republicans, well, you convicted so you can't do nothing right. So they got jealous. The so-called professors, the so-called psychologists, the so-called social workers, people that was getting loot and money to so-called help the kids seeing that we was doing yeah. more and they got jealous. So they said, well, watch their prisoner do this. Watch their prisoner do it. Because we had the experience, we had the desire, and we didn't want the kids to get the pain that we got. Like I said, maybe 70 or 80% of the guys at 12 that was in January with me ended up in prison with me. So we was on a preventive Thing. We it, wasn't it trying sounds, to scare them. They it, might got scared coming in the building them. because the cops at the front gate was yeah. being aggressive, being loud, slamming doors behind them. They was the ones intimidating them. When they got up on the stage, we did what we done. We gave them information. We showed them how weak they was. One time we was up in the gym uh, with the kids up in the auditorium. And I told Ned, yo, go get them 60-pound uh, weights for me. You know, and I'm a little skinny guy, you know. And I grabbed the weights because one of the little boys was looking like he was tough. I grabbed him. I did a out with the 60. Yo, come here, man. Look, come here. Lift them up. He couldn't get them off the ground. I showed him, don't worry about it. One day you're going to be able to lift them up, but right now you can't. So a lot of the things that you think you can do out there, you're not man enough yet to do. You just fall in cycle and says that. 
They said the success rate was off the chart. You know, we see kids today. I see guys today from different jobs I had. That, oh, wow, Mr. Morris. Oh, wow, man, word up. You, man, I appreciate Because they appreciated it because they oh, wow. felt it from our heart. Oh, it wasn't it's a funny that he just said that. No, it's funny that he just said that. Guess what? I had two police officers that took pictures with me today. Now, I'm looking. He said, I know you from somewhere. Your face is familiar. I said, you don't know me. He said, yes, I do. Yeah. And he told me more about my life than I know about my life. He said, you're Maxwell mm -hmm. You went up for parole three times. He said, I came through your criminal justice program. I, I pictures with him today. I was like, shocked. When he said, no, he, mm -hmm. I thought he was trying to indicate something. But, yes, we get plenty. I still got letters and different things. I still hear from people on Instagram, face, all that, telling us the difference and the impact that we had on that line. Yeah. And for example, I, I used to tell the kids, look, don't end up with a number in here. I have one kid write me a letter and say, I hope you're not upset with me, but I got a number. You told me don't get that. He said, but guess what? My number is three something something. It's not a prison number. It's a police badge number. I'm an officer now. Okay. okay. You know, yeah. so. And they used to take us, that we got. the lifers group, the lifers group, they used to take us to Seagirt, New Jersey, where the police training is, the state police, the police officers, all of them go down there and give lectures. I went down there like four different times, right, just to yeah. talk to the so-called probationer officers, the police, because they yeah. knew yeah. we had something to bring to the table. And we wasn't getting paid. We didn't get 50 cents for this. So the psychiatrist, the other guys, Somebody, well, we could get thousands and thousands of doing it, so why are we letting the inmates do it? So they shut everything down, but we the ones who had the knowledge and the information to actually help solve problems. Well, Poochie. We got caught up in problems. Well, Poochie, it's, it's, yes, it's not just that, but a key thing that you two had and the others that worked with you is empathy. When I look at that video, yeah. they don't have no empathy for that, for that, for those children. That African American sheriff was laughing when he was at, well, do yeah. you get complaints? Oh, yeah. just from the psychologist and, and, you know, it's a joke to him. It's a joke. And, yeah. and, and here's the thing though, you know, one of the things I, I, I want to talk about is look. Right now, there's Medicaid for all that they're pushing and what have you. Now, I'm asking questions about, well, where is the mental health component? Because as one of those psychologists said, we don't know what the home life is of these children. We don't know why they acting out and what have you. And then you just throwing them in this program that you have perverted that the lifers group was the first to create and now you perverted it and getting paid yeah. to abuse these children and, and what these children that money that's being paid to them should go towards uh poor families being able to access mental health for yeah, their for, children for yes for before the kids get there you know you talking about what you going to do once they get there but you got nothing in place before they get there that's why I'm saying the re-entry. Let's get pre-entry. You know, let's stop the entry. Because everybody getting money, talking about, yeah, when they come home, we're going to help them do this, we're going to help them do that. But while you down there, they do nothing. Right here in this city of Passion, New Jersey, my biggest fight is with the city council and this board education because they don't want to help the kids. 
Well, they're doing what they want to do. No, they're not. They're doing what's allowed to do. And they're not getting the real information to make them decide to do something else. You know, because y'all blaming them. And so they were, I don't care, well, I'll do what I want to do. And that's the mindset they adapt. And like I said, they could, you got passed in New Jersey where the police have stopped four or five little 15-year-old boys, grabbed them up, throw them in the car, have like five or six cop cars around them, you know, and plant a gun. And plant a gun. And make one of them or all of them cop out to the gun. Because they tell them, we're going to wait you up, you're going to get 15 years and stuff like that. So the kid, well, you know, and make one of them say the other one had a gun. When there wasn't no gun, the police brought the gun, you know? So they like, we yeah, know exactly. they go into the system, they go into the private prison. It's a paycheck. It's an insurance oh, that them five children go to college. That them correctional yeah. officer kids go to college. They using our yeah. children to get their children to school. Where our children end up in the prison system. The innocent program that shows you how many people them been falsely accusing for how long. The little kid that was killed back in Georgia in the electric chair, fourteen years old or something like that, they gave him electric chair thirty years later, they oh he wasn't guilty. Is not making yeah. sense to me that we allow these people to do this to our children when we're in today's market. We got video. So mommy could show you how he ran around the play, how happy he was at his birthday. But y'all said he's a monster. No, y'all making him a monster so y'all could get dollars. You know, you know, in that video, it showed two mothers saying, well, this is the last resort and I, you yeah. know, I, I'm going to do this or that. Now, look, I ain't going to blame them mothers. Okay. Cause yeah. you know, chances are that those children's fathers have already been targeted and put in the system and not in the home yeah. and what have you. So, yeah. so these, so these mothers out here trying to do the best that they can, but like Max, well, you know, say. Max, yeah. you had told me, you know, and I had agreed and I think I put it in my article is that, you know, it's not like these mothers just volunteering their children up. It's the system that's forcing them or coercing them to put them yeah, in there yeah. and what have you. Yeah. Yeah, because right. they under the impression they give them the mindset. If you got four kids and this little boy or this little girl's off the hook, she's going to create or he's going to create a situation where you're going to lose all your kids. The mother's goal is to save their babies. I tell these boys that. I say, everybody might love you, but your mother in love with you. When she first gets you and look in your eyes, she falls in love. So if they come and say, well, this can help him, well, let's try this. Well, he might have ADD, let's give him medication. She's down for whatever because she's trying to help her baby. She's trying to save him, not knowing at the same time you are helping destroy him by letting these people take control of him. And because they're going to mess up his mindset completely. Like you said in the article and stuff, if the mother did what them people did at that joint, talking about the storm program. She would go to jail and they would take the kid and whatever kids are else in the household away from her. You know, and that's the biggest fear. You got these, I told people, once we allow the government to tell 
the mother that she can abuse their kids or beat them or spank them or basically holler at them. You know, she can verbally abuse them and they take him. You know, so now they are guys so where anything that she do to kill, well, I'm calling my caseworker. You can't hit me. You come, I tell you, come in at nine. You come in here at 12. If I try to chastise you for it, you call your caseworker. Now they're going to come and take all your sisters and brothers and put me in jail so she, her hands are tied. She's cuffed up because if she tries to use her instincts to abuse or direct these kids in an aggressive manner, here come the state. Oh, yeah, well, yeah Poochie, Poochie, the word you're looking for. Baby. Yes, sir. Poochie, the word you're looking for is discipline. If she tries to yes, discipline yes. her children. Yeah, 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 discipline. And then there's different forms of it. Yeah, any discipline, yeah. she's not having no control to discipline them even verbally. Because, well, she cursed at me. She said I was stupid. I was like, we got that. And now she's in a situation where she could lose the other kids. You know, so she, you know, it's all messed up and we have to do something. We, the people, only ones that could solve this. When they start taking our kids, taking them, we need to fill, I tell these people at Patterson, we need to fill them courts. We need to let the prosecutors know we're watching, you know, because they can get to them as a job. You know, yeah, hey, this African American. And then after five o'clock, they punch out and they go back home. You know that sheriff, that that sheriff yeah. in Maxwell. I know you you wanted to chime back in, but you know when when yeah. I saw that, I was so mad last night. I couldn't Me even too. sleep. I had the right to relieve that stress. That's what that article is. It was a stress reliever, of what. And as I closed out the article, I was like, you know, I'm thinking like some of the abolitionists pre 1865 who was talking about more militant forms to end slavery. You know, we, I, you know, John Brown was going around putting swords through the backs of slavery, uh, slavers, and what have you. That's how I felt. And and I know though yeah. if I went that route, then I'm gonna be dead or I'm gonna be in prison. You know, but I just like yeah. how you said we need to be out there in the courthouse and watching what's going on. I I feel like that community need in Chester needs to be at that facility and watching them guards and taking pictures of their license plate to let them know we watching you. You de- abusing these children yeah. like that and what have you. Yeah, we could. You see the code that he put Like I said last month, not only do they do it to the adults, they're doing it to the children. You know, they got this phone company that you have to sign up to put before you could just call, collect, and talk to your family. They got so you only could visit on Wednesday at a certain time. If you're five minutes late, oh, no, you're too late. Registration over. You know, and this type of stuff. So they do whatever they can to break the family down, and it's working. Maxwell, Maxwell, yes, yes, sir, bro. Um, did yes, you sir, did mean, you have any comments? But you know, I, Maxwell, yeah, I, if you and Poochie would, I'm going to contact yeah. the Charlotte Observer who did this report because they mentioned yeah. a program that y'all was a part of, and I want them yeah. to contact y'all to get y'all side of the story because yes. it was being it was being I feel like inaccurately portrayed y'all wasn't doing to them children what they was doing but Maxwell no, yo, no, no way. yeah no your way comments Maxwell 
Um, I just want to say, like, you see that cone, that, them cones that they put on them kids' head, that God yeah, traffic cones, cones on that kid's head. Yeah, traffic Come on, that's ridiculous. You know, another thing, the A and E channel that's has never consulted with us. The A and E channel has never consulted with us to do that to do that particular show where they should have really got some insight. I mean, a part of a license group thing was presented to the A&E or something, but they've never consulted with any of us to be as a collaborator or anything to really give them some direction on some of the ones they were doing or somebody to really give some input. That goes to show you where they stood and what they were trying to do with that. You know? They didn't want and to the part that, that they showed when Willie Allen was fucked up. Because Willie Allen um, was one of the best guys there. The part they yeah. showed in that video, they showed for yeah. all lifers, dude. They showed the tall, blood, big, dark skin guy in the white boy's face. You know? Yeah. And yeah. we wasn't getting that many white boys. Right? We had people from yeah. China coming all around the planet coming into the prison to see because we were successful. We were successful. So they took it. They took it. You know, they took it. We got yeah, Phil yeah, Salvas, one of the inmates in there. He was part of, he was 14 when he got locked up. He got 30-something years in. You know? Man, and they talked about, they just gave him a hit. Talking about, they think if he get released at this time, he'll commit another crime. He was 14. And he got 30-something years in. We got Lee Holmes in New Jersey, who was 18 years old when he got locked up, and he got 45 years in. You know? And all Bone. around the country. All around the country, they've done that. Here's the other yeah, thing. You know, when Monique had her beef, I'm talking about the comedian, uh, stand-up comedy yeah. and, and actress, when, when she had her beef with Netflix... You know, I'm not going to get into whether or not how much she should have been paid or whatnot, but I started doing some research at that time, and I found out that she had did a stand-up comedy show that was filmed in a prison, okay? Now, yeah. you know, I, I understand Malcolm X said, you know, don't be quick to condemn somebody who don't think as you think or know what you know, because at one time, you didn't know what you know. So, you know, yeah. but... Them, them white producers, Hollywood producers, knew what they were doing. They're making a profit off of this. That ain't shared. They're making millions of dollars off of these programs on A&E and these other cable networks. And they don't put no money back into actually helping the prisoners that star in there. No, no, they're exploiting no, no. them. And this is a violation of their human rights. Now, yesterday... Um, this didn't get a lot of attention, but I posted it to Black Talk Radio Network. The UN Commission on Human Rights actually brought up the issue of prisoners' human rights. And I feel yeah. like, you know, during this campaign, yeah, it's good that, that black folks and their allies and, and people who are, who are concerned, you know, about slavery pre-1865 and want reparations and whatnot. But I'm, I'm like, 
I'm like over here frustrated because y'all acting like slavery was abolished. Y'all acting like that same abuse that went on on the plantation ain't happening in the prisons at the hands of these guards. And now, now you didn't turn it into a, a plantation entertainment and these corporations making millions of dollars. And then some yeah. of us are watching these programs as a form of entertainment. It's, we live in a very sick, sick society. But guess yeah, what? Let me just say this. One of the things that Jerry Springer. Hey, both of y'all trying to talk at the same time. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Poochie, yeah, go ahead, Max. One of the things that I did when I became president of the Lifers Group, there wasn't a film crew coming in there that wasn't signing a contract with me to donate to that program. I incorporated that, that any program or film company that came in there and wanted to spread our message and they was going to use it for profit or show it on any TV or whatever, that proceeds would go to the Lifers Group to run our program because the government didn't give us no money. We raised the money for that program. Nobody gave us that yeah. money. We raised that ourselves through a photo project that we ran and our members. You know, we had uh, uh, Jerry Springer come in there and explore us. We had Oprah come in there and try to sidetrack us. When they first made that TV show, Hill Street Blues, I'm upstairs in the office. John Artis called me, Ruben Carr, co-defendant, and said, yo, Poochie, you need to get down here. I come to two down. They got all these guys in there. They want them to say, get Hill Street Blues because Hill Street Blues got us. I said, whoa, no. And they wasn't up. Y'all ain't doing that. What's wrong with y'all? You know, these people just trying to exploit y'all so they could get their TV show, you know, popularity. And they're going to have your face and all this on the TV show, and you're not getting a pack of cigarettes. No. Don't yeah. do it. And the producer, he looked at me like, who is this guy? Because the guy started walking out. They wouldn't do it. You know, Oprah came in there with the mindset that she was helping, but she brought some kids in who parents that got killed by uh, guys and stuff like that there and put them on the stage, and they were supposed to be mad at us. When they left, they wasn't mad. You know, they tried it. They keep trying to use yeah, us I just, to explore and get money, and we got nothing. We didn't get a pack of cigarettes. Well, you can't smoke in jail no more. But we used to could smoke, you know. So they brought nothing, and they just want to take, and they still doing that today. You know, they showing things like this storm program. Um, it's all across the country. You know, scares great. It's all across the country, and like Maxwell been promoting and said that wasn't us. The producers did that just to have a catchphrase. You know, and yeah. the look of the prison because they showed the outside of it. They showed the guys. Traumatized. Uh, traumatized. Coming in, the doors being slammed. They had the cop out front all big and work out all day. Come on, this one. And, you know, intimidating, scaring them before we even see them. By the time they come up the stage, up the stairs yeah. to the auditorium where we at, they already have been intimidated by the environment. And they had guys that they would have standing in the hall or out in the center hollering through the gate. Hey, pretty mobile. Hey, pretty boy. You come in here. You're going to be my girl. And that stuff wasn't no reality. 
you know, but they use it as a prop and they got paid. And, and still and getting paid. Still in there. It, it won, won, it won, won two Oscars, a Peabody Award, two in 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 Emmy, a Peabody Award in Oscar. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, so sir, you know, I appreciate what you're doing with your show. And uh, that thing, uh, when Max called me and, and gave me the information, I went and looked at it, and I read your article, and I said, this is this, here we go again. And they're still doing it. And if we as a people don't step up to save our babies 10 years from now, they're still going to be doing it. They're still going to be exploiting us. They still, my generation, we was the ones walking down the road with pitchforks and shovels to go out in the woods yeah. to chop down trees, to go in, in the community where the prison is at, to help people cut their grass, put up fences around their houses. It was free slave yep. labor. You know, we had dairy farms, we was um, had milk, we had the some cores of wood where we would chop down trees, they're getting cores and the people in the community are coming by the cores. They're cheap and we don't get fifteen cents. We get nothing yeah, out. And, and that's still that's going on today. It's still slave labor. Right. Exactly. Still going on today. Yeah, I know I know what yeah. you was gonna say too, brother Scotty. What's you that? I'm going to tell you what your thought was. Since these people put us out there in a light like that, you were going to try to contact that station and say, here, you need to hear the other side of the story from these guys. Right. Since and you... it wasn't like they said it was. Right. Right. I know that. Yeah. Oh, what was that professor name that wrote that article, Michael? Funkin' well, that guy from Rutgers who wrote that article about our program saying that you can't scare people and they don't laugh. We wasn't trying to scare them. That was something y'all was doing. That was a title y'all put on it. We was trying to inform them. We was making them aware. He was paid to do a study for somebody that had other programs out there, and they was trying to shoot the lifers program now because people was coming in from around the world to duplicate yeah. and to implement that I met program. People from I China, people from Japan, Norway. I have people Japan. From they even couldn't speak English good, but they they taking notes and watching. They mm. came in and done yeah. a documentary on me from Jap from Japan. They've come from Japan. They've come from around the yeah. world. Trust me. Yeah, they've come know, from everywhere. And so they took yeah, what y'all yeah. did and perverted it for profit. That's what they did, and yeah. they and they ain't helping nobody. But listen, gentlemen, we come to the end yeah. of the program. I want to get some final thoughts on on tonight's program. We're gonna go to you first, Poochie. What's your final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Well, my final talk with the listeners is that if your kid at five, six, seven is showing you how happy they is, how willing they is to be helpful, don't believe that at 15 they're a monster. If they is, you need to find out why. Because they didn't come out like that. They come out happy, smiling, waving at people, offering people candy and their ice cream. They doing all the right things that babies do. So don't tell me at 15, they are monster. Because we had some professor back in the 70s talking about we was predisposed to be criminals because we had a gene 
that make us criminals. No, the environment makes you criminals. The lack of proper nutrition and education makes them kids go a different way because they all come with a dream. Like I said last month, you go to a little seven-year-old boy, what you going to be when you grow up? He's going to tell you something. You go to a 15-year-old, you know, when you get older, man, what you going to do? He's going to tell you he don't care, he don't know. So if something else changed them, it's not them. They coming out right. They born right just like all human beings on the planet. You know, that's why you can predict. Yeah, out of every 10 born in the hood, seven going in because you know the maze that they're in. If you're able to predict their behavior, that means you know what they're going to be confronted with. It's not them. Go ahead. Exactly. Thanks, Poochie. Yes, sir. All right. I'm yeah, cousin final thoughts. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just going to leave my final thoughts. And, you know, we had a pretty good show. And, uh, Poochie, I thank you for coming on. And, uh, Brother Scotty, thank you for being that bridge. And, you know, for that bridge for us to cost, you know, to get our message out there, you know. And uh, we just look forward to, you know, the listeners calling in. You know, we try to give them something good. Every week we should have a very good show next week. Uh, it will be out soon as to who's going to be on there. I'm not going to throw it out there now, but we will have a few guests okay. on next week. So I'll just, you know, invite the audience, you know, to listen in for next week uh, to the show. And uh, I hope uh, Mother Khadija and, and Brother Faison and uh, their family is all right out there. If you all listening tonight, I hope you all all right out there in Virginia. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Thank you very much, Brother Scotty. All right, all right. Well, thank you, you two brothers, for everything that y'all have done over y'all life to make the world a better place. Um, you know, I'll just leave the listeners with this. Look, I started this program because I read the 13th Amendment, and I realized that legally slavery still exists. Then I started paying more attention and doing research and 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 talking to people that had been in the system. You know, my little brother uh, was a, a prison slave on a turkey farm. And, and I was like, you know, I got to do something. And, you know, this program is, a, is, is me trying to do something in my area of expertise, which is, is media. But listen, like, like Poochie said, even like our guests, of course, I want to thank our guest, Rory, who was talking about, you know, the importance of the district attorney's office and what have you. But, you know, we all been saying, you know, we got to find out what's going on in these courthouses. We got to find out what's going on in that district attorney's office. We got to find out what's going on at these places called Project Storm where they abusing these children. And then once we find out, then we got to formulate a plan on how we got going to end it. Just like we're working on a plan to end slavery once and for all. There should be no exceptions for slavery. OK, and we need to abolish it once and for all. And with that, I just I just implore people to educate yourself and become a new abolitionist and whatever God puts on your heart is your role in the abolitionist movement to do just that. With that said, recognize the fact that we live behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. where they still practicing slavery and it's not going to end itself. It's going to take all of us collectively to end it. Peace and blessings to all. Y'all be safe out there. Peace.
Land of the free, it lies the home of the homeless. Too many die every day, only really just want this freedom.